welcome to Gruesome, your horrific true crime podcast. I'm Connie, along with Paris Hilton's new BFF, Meg, and tonight she is going to tell us about the Beast of Birkinshaw, Peter Manuel. But first, if you're listening to us and you're like, hey, these Zencaster ads are getting on my nerves, I think I'm going to go start my own podcast, you should do it. Go to Zencaster.com, Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com slash pricing, enter promo code gruesome, start your own podcast. Don't put ads in it. We'll be great for you and us. Win-win, <laughs> friend. Here we go. Welcome to the last day of our European serial killer tour. I guess technically one wasn't a serial killer, but that's all right. It can be the last day of our horrific murders of Europe tour. And <laughs> I picked this one because there is something about it that made me laugh. And not because it's funny, but it's just my warped little mind. You know what I'm saying? This is one of the worst serial killers in Scotland's history. It's actually Scotland's first serial killer. But they were from America. <laughs> so... Damn like, it, Peter. Come on. <laughs> Again, not not funny, but not funny. haha. just funny. Go figure. Yeah, it's like, of course. Mm-hmm. So today's trigger warning, sponsored by the listener who informed us that he didn't need trigger warnings because he knew what he was getting into. Yeah, Trent, we're talking about you. Yeah. Trent. Uh, so these are for you. Murder. Sexual assault, gun violence. That's pretty much it. Knife violence. There's some knives in here, but we'll get into it. Peter Manuel, born Peter Thomas Anthony Manuel, all the names, came raging into the world on March 13th, 1927. Pisces in Manhattan, New York. He had a brother, James, who was two years older than him. His mom, Bridget, and his dad, Samuel, migrated to Canada and then moved to New York right before he was born. So he was born in Manhattan, but his parents had just migrated. So when Peter was three, his family was actually living in Detroit. But around two years later, when he was five, they they did move back to Scotland. So he didn't live in America for a long time, but just the fact that he... Was born he did. There. Yeah, it was just enough. Just to note, when Bridget and Samuel migrated back to the U.S., or when they migrated to the U.S., they left James, the older brother, in Scotland with her mother. So when they got back to Scotland, Peter suddenly had an older brother that he had never had. He went to school, but he had an American accent, and he was behind on what he had learned compared to his peers, and that allegedly led to other students and even teachers mocking and teasing him. Oh, I know. Come on. Lame. Peter's sister, Teresa, was born shortly before the family moved again. This time they moved to Coventry, England, and Peter began school at a Roman Catholic school. And this was right around the time that he started causing havoc. He was about 10 years old when his teacher found a dirty drawing in his desk. Absolutely filthy drawing. I did not see the drawing, but I really wish I could have. When he was confronted about it, he showed <laughs> zero signs of remorse, which it is re- 
<laughs> it reminds me of that scene off of Superbad where yeah. he's just drawing dicks all over yeah. everything. Look at this big veiny bastard. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, Sorry. But no, it's that's exactly what I pictured too. You're 100% right. But he's 10 and he shows no remorse, which I think is pretty telling of a 10-year-old who just got busted for having dirty pictures. Like, you don't even, you're just like, whatever, this is my fate. You don't deny mm-hmm. it or anything. Yeah, I did that. So uh, Exactly. His first actual crime happened the very next year. He broke into the church's collection box and stole the money out of it. And he continued just petty theft, essentially, until October 1939, when he was sent to jail for the first time for shop breaking, which is breaking into a shop. Oh, I was like, what is that? You break <laughs> the shop? shop breaking? Yeah, no, breaking into a shop. And also larceny, which kind of goes hand in hand. Peter served that year, and he was released only to end up back at court, charged with breaking and entering a month after he got out of this this holding facility. And he was sent to, he goes to all of the boarding schools for troubled kids. Every possible school that is actually a jail, he goes to it. And his brother was actually already at a different one of these schools because he was getting into his own trouble. So Peter's school's documented him as cunning he puts on an air of innocence and very deep however they also described him as deceitful difficult to believe acted as a ringleader on several occasions he would get the younger boys into trouble he would make them steal keep them out all night he was arrested so many times as a kid jesus Uh, and he went to a very tough school at that time it was considered There's a lot of quote unquotes in here. It was reputable, but several years later, they found out that many of the inmates at this school were sexually abused. So Uh. Peter may or may not have experienced that, but he ran away from that school almost immediately. Immediately think of Carl Panzram. Exactly. Yeah. They're going to these places that are supposed to be reformed. And they end up being horrific. Like it's. Yeah, like it's one of the flies. Absolutely. And when he is in these schools, actually in them and not running away from them, he's actually pretty well behaved. But the second he is able to get out, he's just lawless. He does not care. By 1942, he was 15. He was breaking into homes and then he shifted into assault. A woman woke up to find not only that her home was being burgled, but that a teenage boy was beating her head in with a hammer. Oh, my God. That's a huge. She survived, but she spent many days in the hospital with brain hemorrhage and a concussion, and he was sent back to a reform school. So before throw the kid out, before running out of this school. He actually beat the wife of a staff member with a club. He broke her nose and her shoulder, and then he dragged her into the forest and tried to rape her. He's 15, 16 years old at this point. He failed, which is a running theme with his rape attempts, which thank goodness, but he something happens several times, and you'll see that theme come up. 
but he also left what would be the first of this very trademark style of his um breaking into houses so he would break out and break into house and he would just absolutely destroy it he would throw food everywhere he would put his cigarettes out places he would wipe his muddy boots wherever he could just the audacity just blatant vandalism on top of stealing and because it becomes a trademark police eventually are like oh peter we know it's you i think i would be especially in a day and age where we have insurance and stuff, you know, it's not, you can get your stuff back if it's you know, stolen, stolen, but I would be even more pissed if I walked into my house and they had just destroyed it. Yeah. I think I would, if someone broke into my house and stole things from me, I would be upset. I would be scared. I would be feel violated, frustrated. Like, yes. But if someone trashed my house after they robbed me, I would be furious. I, I got would three kids. It's already. I'm already there. <laughs> you make it worse. I'm coming for you. I'm going to yes. find you. You will find me with a hand. So this was the first time that he would break into these houses, absolutely destroy them. He gets sent to this new school and it's run by ex-military. It was more of a farm. And while Oof, the other schools like had. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the other schools, they had said he was charming, he was well-behaved. This one actually said that he just liked to hear himself talk and he was a terrible liar. And police reports, a lot of them echoed that sentiment. They were like, he's a terrible liar. He has a good memory, so he'll remember the lies that he told, but he just does not care that you even know that if he's lying or not, essentially. So he gets out of this place in March of 1945. And it's like, it's not even years. It's every couple of months, this kid's in a new place. But if you took a history class, 1945, World War II is rip-roaring through Europe right now. And he actually applied to the U.S. Armed Forces because he was a U.S. citizen. And he was declined. They were like, hell no, obviously. Because That's you're- actually a pretty big... That's a pretty big tale of what type of person you are. Because exactly. back then they were like, we need people. Yeah, you we'll take you, anyone. No, they were like, absolutely not. Do not. You may not. And he, it didn't say that he had specifically tried to join the British forces, but either way, he could not get into the military. So he became a carnival worker and he moved back in with his family. But that was in March, and by May, he had broken into tons of houses already. In just a couple of weeks, at the end of May, he broke into four houses and stole gold and clothes, just whatever he could get, because this is this is war times. There's rations. People are more poor than they've ever been. And he's only 19. He's still a kid. I mean, technically, he's an adult, but he's still a kid. And it does finally get to a point where theft is no longer enough for him. So he had started assaulting and kind of shifted back into just theft. But in March of 1946, a woman was walking home at night and she had her three-year-old child with her. He pulled her off the path, left her three-year-old just standing in the pathway. He shoved her up up against a fence and the woman... She fought and she screamed and 
actually ran Peter off. At a girl. But he ran back and just kicked her over and over. He physically assaulted her and then ran off again and just disappeared for four days. Okay. So he, it seems like he was going to rape this woman. She was under the impression that that was about to happen based on how he treated her. Disappeared for four days. So when he reappeared, again, it's nighttime. It's dark. A nurse had just left her shift at the hospital. She's 26 years old and she was walking home. Wait, and this road that she's on is the same road, except it's about six miles away from where Peter had attacked, had attacked the woman just a few days before. He came out of the darkness and hit her in the face. He covered her mouth with his hand and pulled her to the ground. She screamed and bit him. Good for her. Yeah. And a guy on a motorbike came roaring in. Some pedestrians came to help her. She was essentially saved by people in the area. And Manuel just escaped into the darkness again. But 24 hours later, two miles away from where he had attacked, Tempted to attack the nurse, another woman was walking home. It's this, it's kind of a quiet public street, right? So it's not busy, it's dark, there's not a lot of people around. And he snuck up on this woman, punched her in the face, put his hand over her mouth, and dragged her to the ground. Despite her screams and the fact that she actually tried to fight him off. No one came to save this woman. He cut her clothes off. He raped her. And after he was finished, he blindfolded her and ran off. Now, of these three women, at least two of them gave exact descriptions of Peter Manuel. Okay. He has black hair and they found his hair at at least one of the attacks. He was arrested because they were like, oh, yeah, we know that guy. He's a real piece of work, yeah. And he was sentenced to spend the next several years in prison until he was released in 1953. Something happened with his sentencing, though, because he wasn't charged with all three of these attacks. He was only charged with the one rape, and he defended himself in court. And because of this, he, when he was in jail, he started to study law. It gave him a big head about it. So then people in the jails were coming to him for legal advice. Very weird. But he went to jail until he was 26, which is still pretty young, right? Because he's been at it since he was 10 years old. Yeah, 11, I guess. So in 1953, he comes out, gets a job. He got a typewriter. He was like, I'm going to become a journalist. But he really just became a snitch for the police. He was just selling out people who sought him out for help. Because of reading up on the law, right? And he was still also stealing. He wasn't totally clean. But in 1954, he met Anna O'Hara and he fell in love. So we have a love story in here. They were engaged the very next year in May. And during that time, he was pretty well behaved. He didn't do too much. He was still... He just still did sketchy stuff, but he wasn't blatantly breaking into houses and breaking the law. Raping women. None of that. Raping women. Exactly. Yeah. So he apparently Anna received a letter and some people have suggested that he sent this letter to her to get it off of his chest, but it just listed all of 
everything he had done essentially in his previous encounters with the law law but he just brushed it off he was like oh no i know who sent that it came from america went through russia and now it's here in your hands i know who did that and so she just brushed it off too which i would have been like no sir red flag they didn't end up getting married because peter wasn't religious and anna was roman catholic and she wanted him to confess his sins before they got married. And he was like, mm, I don't think I can do that. I don't and think there's so, enough time for the priest. Yeah. So her family was like, no, this is not. We're not doing this. And they didn't. That engagement was very short-lived. And according to Manuel's journal, Anna and Peter were supposed to get married on July 30th, 1955. Instead... On July 30th, 1955, at 11 p.m., Peter took Mary McLaughlin at knife point and forced her to climb a barbed wire fence where he dragged her down into a field. And Mary screamed for help and people heard her. She was near a shop where the shopkeeper sent for police and went out searching with a torch into the field behind his shop. Other people joined in and they searched until they were within a few yards of where Peter laid with Mary holding a knife to her throat. He threatened to cut her head off if she said anything. And one by one, everyone left. They couldn't find anything. They were just, like, had they gone just a little further, they would have found her. But oddly enough, again, he stopped short of raping her. She made it home that night after a very long and strange back and forth. He apparently had started to and then stopped and then sat up and then they just sat there next to each other and talked over the course of, like, several hours before she was able to get back home. And to be said about the other rape as well, when they did semen testing, there was no semen found on the other woman or on any of these women. It was all in his own pants. So they think that just this act of violence against these women was like getting him there. Yeah, which was why he was stopping short of the rapes. Because he was pretty much already done, which is gross. (sighs) Yeah, it's nasty. So Mary makes it home. And she goes into her house and her mom and sister are there and she tells them all about it and they're all terrified. From her point of view, think of how much of a badass she is to be able to sit there and carry. Because you know she's doing it for her life. She's doing it. Yeah, and it says she tried. She was working the angles to make him sympathetic towards her. And she thought that that's what had worked. She said that he had stopped right after she said that she had children she needed to get home to. She didn't have any children, but she was just doing. And that's what after he sat up and kind of like turned away she just started humanizing herself as much as possible which is something you should do if you're ever in that circumstance make yourself seem as human as possible don't let someone dehumanize you in order to abuse you i guess pro tip i don't know she did the right thing so despite him being an infamous serial killer he didn't start murdering people supposedly until January 1st, 1956. Oh, wow. He murdered Ann Neelans at a golf course. 
he had watched her throughout the night as she had been dancing with her sister. The press called her murder the fifth T murder. She had also been assaulted. She's a machinist. And before Peter stalked her and murdered her, or after he stalked her, he beat her with a piece of iron. Yeah. Witnesses gave descriptions, and he was caught fairly quickly. Like, people had seen him stalking her and saw them get on the same route, and he got busted, but his father provided him an alibi, so he was no longer a suspect. I know. Several months later, September, he breaks into a house. Okay, and this house is the home of the Martin family, and he does his little trademark thing. He pours food everywhere. He gets mud all over the place. He smokes and throws his cigarettes wherever he wants. He's just, like, disgusting. And then he just kind of hangs out in the Martin's home and uses it as a base. Peter crept over to another home, was a neighbor's, uh, as the home of the Watts family. Wee hours of the 17th of September, okay? So 17th of September, um, he had broke into this other house on the 15th of September. So he just kind of hung out there for two days until he get got to this house. And where He's, were they? Do we know where they were? The other family or this family? The, the original family. They just weren't at their house at that time. Okay. He went over to the Watts family's house and he smashed in the front door, had a glass panel, and he proceeded to find Marion Watts, the mother matriarch of the house. He found her in her bedroom and shot her in the head with a 38 revolver. Oh, he wow. then fired two shots into the body and head of her sister, Margaret Brown, who was sleeping next to her. And the second, sh- they kind of thought that she maybe had started to wake up after she heard her sister be murdered. Mrs. Watts's nightdress had been pulled up and her sister's pajamas had been torn. So something had happened. Then, though, he moves on to Vivian Watts's room where there's signs of a struggle. She probably heard those shots and woke up because her mother and aunt had just been murdered. And Vivian had been actually assaulted. She had been hit her, hot, her hands had been tied behind her back. Her pajamas were ripped off. Vivian Watt was 16. She had been assaulted. Before he left that house, he covered each of the bodies with bed sheets and then stubbed his cigarette out into the carpet. Just another one of those things he does. The next morning, their housekeeper arrived and couldn't get in. And normally she just walked in because they would unlock the door for her. She would normally go to the back door and it was unlocked for her to come in, but it wasn't. And when she went to the front, she found that it had been shattered. So she went to Vivian's window to knock on the glass and there was no answer. So she went to the neighbor's house and the women went back to the Watts house and found the mailman. Essentially, he put his arm through the broken panel and unlocked the door And that was when they found their bodies. They called the police and there was, they found out about the break in next door as well. 
and they found his trademark, Peter Manuel's trademark at the house next door where he had just trashed it. Plus the cigarette was the same. So they went straight to his house with a, with a search warrant for the 38 revolver that had murdered the Watts families or the Watts women. However, Mrs. Watts had a husband named William and the police fully thought that William Watts, who was away fishing at the time, was responsible for these murders. Like something about he wasn't sympathetic enough. There were a lot of things that played into it, but he would have been convicted for this murder. Like he had been arrested. They were pinning evidence on him. But one of the next murders pulled it away from him and made them realize that it was, in fact, Peter Manuel. Before William is exonerated, Manuel killed again. The next murder was Sydney Dunn. She was 36. She was a taxi driver. Manuel shot and killed her while she was working. But he had already returned home by the time her body was found. He was never tried for this murder. It took place in a completely different area than what all of his other crimes had taken place in. And we'll kind of come back around to something else that happened after this. But we're going to brief over it just really quick and then come back to it in a minute. The next murder, Isabel Cook was 17. She -hmm. disappeared after she left her Mount Vernon home. She was going to a dance at her grammar school. On December 28th, 1957, he stalked, raped, and strangled her, and then buried her in a nearby field, which was not really in his MO. He didn't normally bury these people, but he he had to inevitably lead people to where her body was. And this murder, kind of done, the woman before, they didn't actually link it to him initially because it didn't match what he was doing, which was breaking into houses and killing families, essentially. But the Smarts, the Smarts were the family that finally linked Peter Manuel to all of these murders. So Peter was 45, Doris was 42, and Michael Smart was only 10 years old. The Smarts were shot dead in their Uddingston home. In the very early hours of January 1st, 1958, he always does something on the first day of the new year. Mm. Like that was just something I linked as I was reading through all of these instances. And pretty much every January 1st, this guy's up to no good. After these murders, he stayed in their house for a week. Ugh! he ate their leftovers. He fed their cat. He stole some money that Peter Smart had had for the holiday. And then he took their family car. He even gave a police officer a ride in this car and helped that officer look for another person he had murdered, Isabel Cook. Yeah. Why did the police officer have his own car? I don't know. They didn't say. (laughs) Maybe they were just searching that area on foot at that time. Yeah, that's what it makes sense to me. So, obviously, this guy's had his run-in with the police, and they are very familiar with him. Like, the police know, and they think that it's him just based on this messy kind of situation he left in these houses. But they couldn't prove it was him until after they searched the Smart's house and 
kind of retrace their steps because they found those, they found money that Peter had for the holiday and they found it was missing and then they found it where Manuel had spent it. So this is some 50s old school, old school. cop work happening. Yep. And he had used them to buy drinks in a bunch of pubs. He had just been buying drinks. So the police actually arrested his father, Samuel, and Peter confessed to eight of the murders, but not done. And then he provided all the information that only the murderer could know. So at 11.10, that same night that they arrested his dad, they formally charged him with murdering the the Smart family and breaking into that other house. So we're going to go back up to Sidney Dunn. So he does get arrested, right? And he is he does get the death penalty. But they didn't actually say that he definitely killed Dunn until after he had already been hanged. Because they found a button in Dunn's taxi that matched his jacket. So... There were things that said it was a random person. Someone came off of a boat and did it. Someone saw him in a different place. But it's pretty much well, it's a well-respected idea that he also killed Sidney Dunn, even though it wasn't technically confirmed. All right. So he goes to trial. And this is sensational because this is the first serial killer in Scotland at this point. And everyone, he defends himself again. Jesus. I know. He called William Watt as a witness, the man who he murdered his whole family. Are you shitting me? No. And he came as any. I would have killed him right on the spot. I would have walked in like pow pow. And the judge was like, you know what? You're not bad at this. Straight up said it. Was like, hey, you're doing okay. And he was unable to convince the jury that he was innocent because of all of the evidence, Mm -hmm. except for Anne. There was a lack of evidence there, so those charges were dropped against him. (laughs) He he just kept going. He kept winding up these stories and trying to confuse the jury. Luckily, they weren't. On the 11th of July, 1958, he was hanged from the gallows at Barlany Prison by Harry Allen. His last words were, turn up the radio and I'll go quietly. And there's actually reports that he is responsible for a lot of murders from the 50s. But because he was in prison so often and because he was doing other stuff, it's not super confirmed. He was the third to last criminal to be executed in Scotland. And... Yeah, he's yucky. They also, his remains are actually at Bar Linney still. And there, right now, there are groups that want to find all of the inmates that had been hanged and give them proper burials and get them out of there because it's going to be demolished in two years, three years. Good. I think he should die right there. Like I think, I mean, yeah, I, honestly, I think it. they should just doze it over and start fresh. Smell you later. Smellulator Peter well, Manuel. It's weird that he escalated. Like, how do it's, you? It's weird that you go from. I understand he had assaulted before, but it was. It's weird to me that he went so. I mean, from trash trashing houses, the Watts. He was 
wrecking the house next door, then he was like, I'm going to go kill a whole family. Like, what? Yeah, I I don't know if he didn't expect that many people to be in there. I don't think he expected the daughter to be in there, but he watched things so carefully and he was he frequently stalked his victims. So maybe he did know that they were all in there and that William Watts wasn't home. And That's gross. Yeah, he gives me is, the creeps. He is gross. And he was very, like, he had a very distinct look about him. And the police knew him so well for his exa- the exact way he did things, you know? He had a very specific style of... And I'm like, you... I guess that just goes with the terrible liar thing, you know? Yeah. Like, he didn't care that he was a terrible liar. He just did it. I know. There are theories that he had a concussion as a kid, and that was why he behaved this way, but he never actually had... Um, a full psychiatric evaluation they thought he might have had he got been convicted for all three of those initial rapes but nothing nothing of the sort so he didn't sexually assault his murder victims so he does that's the thing he does sexually assault them some of them were just digitally sexually Ugh. assaulted i know so gross oh that that <sighs> i know it's it's a little bit of a conundrum because I I looked through I read through two different books and I read through several excerpts from journals and police reports and the thing that they couldn't come they couldn't confirm is whether he had absolutely sexually assaulted these women but they couldn't confirm how far he had sexually assaulted these women one because people didn't listen to women at this time mm-hmm. right they every single instance of them in recorded is recorded it's recorded as them being hysterical and not understandable which is they are allowed to be hysterical yeah absolutely they were sexually assaulted but they never actually found semen within anyone i guess it was all just in the general vicinity that's disgusting yeah, it's super gross. Well, the Beast of Birkinshaw, an American citizen, an American werewolf sh- in Scotland. What a shithead. I know. Did you know that they used to refer, serial killers were referred to as werewolves? Mm-hmm. And that's part of the myth and legend. I was reading about mm-hmm. that recently. I would like to read more about it. I like how that lore is connected. It's kind of interesting. I read that initially when I was researching the Kachevo monster. They had kept referring in that situation. Well, that sucked. (laughs) It did (laughs) suck. I'm sorry. Really wanted to go out with a bang. Thanks for letting us do this horrible tour of Europe just for you. Yeah, but next time I want to go on a fun tour of Europe where I can visit for real and it's not just like... (laughs) see those places from afar we went to california and we saw several different places from some of our episodes yep it's we crazy in, we saw what was it the church from arliss perry episode mm-hmm. and we were in el segundo yep and if you have thought about maybe you want to do a podcast we know you have we know the back of your little sweet beautiful brain you're like i kind of want to do a podcast you should and you should use zencaster do it 
to do it because there's studio quality sound. You get HD video. There's automatic post-production and transcription, all of which are very important things when you're making a podcast. All you need is a mic, some headphones, and an internet web browser. If you use... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, and after this week in LA, I am telling you guys, whatever you are thinking you want to start a podcast on, there is a niche for it. You can... There is. You can curl up and be warm and cozy in that little niche. You belong there. You belong there. You also belong with us. So don't like, don't forget about us. But like, you know, do your own thing. (laughs) Fly, little birdie. Spread your sweet baby wings. Use the code. Gruesome with a capital G at Zencaster.com slash pricing. You get 30% off your first three months. Go do it. Then send us the link to your podcast when it's up. We want to hear it. Yeah. LA is crazy. I loved it though. I want to go back, but I don't have shit to do. <laughs> and I can just explore. Just want to hang out. Megan had a terrible flight time though. Dude. I checked into my flight one minute after I was technically supposed to. And in that one minute, they gave my seat to a lady with a dog. Ugh. That sat next to Connie. And I ended up, I was supposed to fly from Indiana to California. I was going to get there at nine in the morning with mm-hmm. Connie. Mm-hmm. And instead, they flew me to JFK and then JFK to LA. And I didn't get there till seven o'clock at night. And I was over it. Yeah. I, my, we have two different takeaways from this, I think. And this like explains, I think this is the, if I could have an analogy to explain the differences in our personalities, because it would be this, because my takeaway from this whole situation is never park in economy parking. Like (laughs) don't do it. Park in the garage, like just park up there. And then you would have walked right on. You'd have been right there with us. And your takeaway is like, I'm going to leave earlier. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so normally... Normally, I check in the night before, and it's never been an issue. Like, and I keep my ticket on my phone, but I didn't have that stuff this time. So I was just like, it'll be fine. I didn't even think about it being an issue, but I always park an economy parking lot because I am frugal. <laughs> I'm a frugal human. <laughs> and that is not the word that I use. <laughs> yeah, she uses the word cheap, but that's what, like, I'm not cheap. I'm just poor. Like, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I just can't afford it, you know, like, like it still costs me like 50 bucks to park an economy parking. And but like, you know what? I parked way closer than that and I paid 15 more dollars. That was it. Doesn't matter. I used that $15 at Starbucks on my drive home. <laughs> so when but we I got went back, back through, I was like, did we get the notification to do it? And the, cause like all of the flight stuff went into like our podcast email, but it was like tucked. We get so many emails. It was like tucked down at the bottom. Cause I never saw the notification to check it early. I was like, I didn't even know like that was a thing. Like I, I, I am a, a, again, I think this is like when we were first talking about like how we were flying out, I am a two to four hours early at the airport every time like that is that is where I feel most safe is to be there that early 
this time we left. Our flight left at eight. It's an hour and a half drive from my house. I left my house at 345 in the morning to get there. Luckily I did because two cars ahead of us, there was like a small little fender bender that had us sitting in traffic for two hours. I was, when I tell you guys, and it was raining, like it was raining, pouring rain. My husband is like laughing at me because like he has like bad astigmatism. So he doesn't like to drive at night. So I was like, I'll drive. It's not a big deal. I'm like up and ready to go. Had my coffee, my Red Bull. I'm ready to go. I see this stop and I'm watching my time, like just go like my arrival time, get later and later and later to the point of I have a full on meltdown. Like I was a five-year-old child. I was crying. I was talking about how I was going to miss the flight. I called Megan. I was like, I'm not going to make this flight. Like we're going to be late. And then in a, a change of events, Megan was the one that was late. And I got to my, although I felt zero relaxation on that, like that whole trip up there. Cause I got to the, I got back to the flight at seven 35 as they were boarding. And I was all the way in the back of the line and oh, it was stressful. Not as stressful as like having to find another flight, but. See, I don't think there's anything wrong with boarding the flight last because you're like your seat's saved, you know, like you're going to get to it. I don't like, I don't like, I like when you told me originally, you're like, oh yeah, I'll be there about seven. I was like, well, I normally check in, like I said, I check in the night before and then I get there an hour early. Oh, like, and you don't, but you don't go through, you don't check a bag ever, right? I try not to check a bag. Yeah. I normally just have my carry on and my, like a purse or a carry on in a backpack if I have one. And I just go through security and I'm there. It's never like I've flown a ton. It's never, I've never missed a flight until that time. And I was just like, gee, money, Christmas. I always like, we this on our flight out we got there hella early but it's that's i feel so much less anxiety than i did being like holy shit because at first my flight was like my thing was showing like i wasn't getting there till 7 35 i was like we're gonna miss the flight and my husband's like trying to talk me off this cliff that i was about to throw myself off of (laughs) sobbing and And the cliff was like your car yeah (laughs) like just out the car window i'm done i was crying and i was like oh I was like a child and I think that is probably the most unattractive I've ever been to my husband. Like he was sitting there looking at me and he didn't say a word. He was just like, it's okay. Cause he just saw that I was like, if I was going to commit murder, it would have been if one smart ass comment came out of that mouth. Yep. (laughs) Would have been at that fender bender. And then we get out there and my husband has like, my husband came with us. My he has a friend that's from LA and was like really awesome. Like took us around the very first night we were there. Megan got to see my weirdness in full display as we go to Korean barbecue. And I do not eat. I, we've talked about it. I don't do potlucks. I don't, I, I don't like eating off of other people. I don't even know my children eat off me. I don't drink after people. It's just, I do not do that. He takes us to this Korean barbecue place, which I was, he was like, you get to cook your food. And I was like, oh, that sounds awesome. I'm cooking my own food. This sounds like the best place I've ever been. We get there. It's sensory overload because like everything's on the table and I didn't really know what anything was. And before I could dive in, he starts eating 
like off of his fork and then putting it in the other things. Like not my husband, my husband's friend. And just like eating like family style, but he wasn't serving himself. He was just like digging in and I didn't eat. <laughs> I just sat there looking. I was trying looking not to grumpy. Yeah, I was because it was like $200. Like the bill was like $200. And I was like, I didn't eat a damn thing. Yeah, it was a, uh, that was a rough one. I would love to try Korean barbecue again, but like under better circumstances. Because mm-hmm. we you were and I was like, I would like to go sleep. That's all I yeah. was thinking about. It was just how much, we were, I, how tired I was. Yeah, because it was like 10 o'clock or 9 o'clock. So it was like midnight our time. I was starving. and But I couldn't let them know like, yo, bro, like, you have ruined this experience for me because you're just fucking eating out of every single one of these bowls. <laughs> that was yeah, that was awful. It was not fun. And then we, the next day, my husband Zach was like, I've never seen you look more miserable than you did. Like you just had the ugliest look on your face. Like you would rather be anywhere else. You're like, I would. I would have uh-huh. rather have been anywhere else. <gasps> it's 11-11, make a wish. I wish I'd never have to go to Korean barbecue with Fischler again. <laughs> Honestly, same. We'll see you next week back in America. Back in America. Are, you know who you're doing? Yeah, but I'm not going to tell you guys. Uh, obviously. I just didn't know if you. Yeah, I do. I'm already. I didn't know if you knew it was in America it. or if you yeah. had one that you were like, maybe it won't be in America. No, I am doing a request, a listener requested episode. Ooh, fancy. But I guess our Patreon subscribers will get one more Europe because we're going to Ireland for our Patreon bonus episode. Thank you so much for listening to Gruesome Horrific True Crime, a Zencaster-powered podcast. Seriously, we wouldn't be here without them. Zencaster is simple to use and makes it easy to edit your own podcast. Zencaster gives you automatic high-quality post-production sound, transcription, and HD video recordings of all of your episodes. If you want to start a podcast, and we think you should, click the link in the show notes or at our website and use the code GRUESOME with a capital G for 30% off your first three months. We love you, beautiful strangers. And if you love us too, here are some ways that you can support Gruesome. Please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or a five-star rating on Spotify. This helps other true crime connoisseurs find us. Follow us at Gruesome Podcasts on Instagram or TikTok and talk to us on our posts. Join the Patreon. Sign up to join our True Crime Sticker of the Month Club and gain access to bonus episodes and exclusive Patreon perks. Or if a one-time donation is more your thing, we have a Venmo at Gruesome Podcast and a PayPal via our email, gruesomepodcast at gmail.com. Speaking of which, we love hearing from you. It seriously makes our whole life. So send us your questions, comments, suggestions, or just ask our opinion on whether that person you met on Tinder is a serial killer or not. Tune in next week and don't forget, lock your windows, lock your doors, And on Wednesdays, we're We're gruesome. gruesome.